It's going to be from Proverbs chapter 8, verses 32 through 36. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Forever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, thank you, Esther and, and team, for leading us. It was just a beautiful time of, of singing and praise together. Um, would, would you pray with me as we, as we continue on our, our time together this morning? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit to worship you. Lord, to, to calibrate our hearts, to be reminded of, of who you are and who we are. Lord, I thank you for this chance that we have to gather together. Lord, as we come from various places and backgrounds and stories of weeks filled with joys and burdens of heartaches, Lord, we are thankful for the fact that you are the God who meets us in our mourning and you meet us in our joy. Lord, would this time, as we hear from your word, be a time where we are shaped more and more to be like your son, Jesus, who came to live for us, die for us, and bring us back to you. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear from your word this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, Reed Kappel. I have the joy of serving here as the, the campus pastor uh, of Christ Communities Olathe Campus, and it is, uh, yeah, it's a joy to, to be with you as we uh, bring uh, to a close our time in the book of Proverbs. Uh, not like forever, you can still read it, you know, on your own, but, uh, but our, in our time here on Sunday morning. But, but as we jump in, I, I wanted to share a story from uh, when I was in college, a conversation I remember having that I will, I will never forget. And one thing I've learned as a communicator, you have everyone's attention when you use that line, and I'll never forget this. Uh, so, uh, but I will, I will never forget this. Uh, I was talking with my pastor in college, and it was after church, and I was asking him his plans for the afternoon, and he said that he was actually going to be officiating a funeral. And, and I said, man, I bet you probably attend quite a, a high number of funerals. And he said, yes, I, I do, I've done many. And, and at that time in my life, I was about 21, I had attended, from, from my memory, I think two funerals. I said, I've only been to two in my entire life. And I'll never forget what he said. He looked at me and he said, how unfortunate. And, and it took me a second to register. I was like, did he say that wrong? I think he said that wrong. Because shouldn't I be fortunate that I haven't seen loved ones put into the ground? I mean, shouldn't I be blessed because I haven't faced death and experienced that in those that I love? But his words stuck with me because what, what I believe my pastor was telling me, and he went on to say, he said, no, the reality is, is that we cannot fully grasp the beauty of life until we understand the reality of death. And, and, and I've been thinking about that for, for so many reasons these past several weeks. One, as we enter into Proverbs, and as we bring it to a close and think about what it means to live a life of wisdom, and, and as I think about it, I, I can't help but, but bring to mind the words of the psalmist that have been a comfort to me this week, where the psalmist says in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
And I've been thinking about this as we've been preparing for the end of this series in Proverbs for several reasons as we think about what it means to live a life of wisdom. And yes, it is embracing the, the practices of wisdom that we've explored, but, but there is a reality that wisdom cannot be fully embraced and lived out until we understand that there is an end to our days. And this has hit me afresh as, as we have had a handful of members of our church pass away in recent weeks. It's been heavy on my heart, and so this is not just a theoretical message about how we live a life of wisdom, how we avoid dying as fools. It is a message that is very real and palpable to me, and so if you're okay, we're going to get real this morning, because I believe that wisdom is, is found now in this life when we contemplate the end of life. And I know that sounds more, but I know that sounds kind of dark, but there's a reality in which that's true that we need to spend time thinking beyond ourselves, beyond just our time in this world, and beyond our own limited perspective. If that is the only way in which we view reality, we are setting ourselves up for a life of regret. And so this morning, as we, as we bring this Proverbs series to a close, I want us to reflect on this question. How can we avoid dying as fools? Or, or, or to maybe put it another way, how can we avoid a life of great regret? Because the reality is, I mean, all of us know the pain of regret. Whether you have lived 10 years or 50 years or 70 years, we all know the pain of regret. And we all want to do as much as we can to avoid regret, making decisions that we look back on and say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And, and throughout the book of Proverbs and throughout our, our series, we've been exploring what wisdom is. And we, we've said that wisdom is the skillful, skillful art of living in God's world. And we've been exploring such wise practices. You know, we, we opened up the series by looking how wisdom starts with the fear of God, how, how wisdom is about trusting God and not in and of ourselves, that wisdom invites wise people into our lives that wisdom builds long-lasting friendships, wisdom is generous with everything, and wisdom is very much aware of the power of words, that we speak life and death. And, and, and some of you practice that very intangibly. I don't know if you were up in the upstairs lobby, but some of you wrote some encouraging words to us as a staff on Post-it notes. It was beautiful. Somebody, one was just like, do you have a dog? That was just very encouraging. I just loved that. Um, someone also referred to me as Dear Little Reed. I don't know what that means, but I'll take it. Um, <laughs> But, but truly, I was encouraged by the fact that you guys have been so generous with your words towards us. But, but while all these things are necessary, while, while fearing God, trusting in Him above all things, being wise with our time, our resources, our words, all of those are necessary and vital and true in living a life of wisdom, but we would be remiss if we failed to see that there is also an active defense against foolishness that we must be aware of if we are to live a wise life. And so if there is one thing that you, you take or that we take together from our time this morning, I, I hope it's this general idea that the life of a fool produces a life of regret. The life of a fool produces the life, a life of regret. And this morning what I want to do is kind of take a deeper dive into to foolishness, uh, not like to be foolish, you know, but to understand what is foolishness. And we've looked at it in part throughout the series, but I want us to understand what it is that we must guard ourselves from. And we're going to look at three different Proverbs to see who, who the fool is and how we must avoid being the fool. And, and the first passage is Proverbs chapter 26, verses 11 through 12. 
And Solomon says this, very vividly, I might add, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Isn't that lovely? That's just so wonderful. I highly doubt this verse is stitched on a pillow, like in your house, you know. <clears throat> no, one, no one gets this tattooed on their, on their, you know, bicep. But maybe we should because there's a lot of wisdom in it. It's guarding us from making mistakes, guarding us from, from being the kind of person who falls into habitual regret. And the first thing I want us to look at, and in regards to foolishness from this proverb is this, that fools struggle to see their foolishness. Fools struggle to see their foolishness. And th this is the profound catch-22 of foolishness and wisdom. Because you see, the fool, I mean, by definition, the fool is the person who doesn't see that they're foolish. The wise person, the wise person is the one who invites correction, who seeks out knowledge, who, who is willing and able to submit themselves to the input and wisdom of others, and all the while, they never arrive in thinking that they're wise. The fool, on the other hand, believes that they are wise in their own eyes, that they are the standard by which everything else is measured, and are really struggling to see the fact that they are a standard unto themselves, which leads them to repeat mistakes and to become even immune to the fact that they make mistakes. Not that dissimilar from this kid in this video. This is, you're just gonna love this. You know, he's, try, he's trying to pick up the tennis ball, but he's not realizing that his efforts are just putting him down a path of time and time again, repeating mistakes. <laughs> I'm just, just let it sink in for a second here. <laughs> this goes on for an hour and a half. No, just kidding, just kidding. Now, now seriously, we can look at this and we can, we can laugh, we think this is silly, but, but there's a sense in which this kind of describes some of our behavior. We found ourselves in a situation like this where we are utterly blind to our mistakes and, and we find ourselves making the same mistake over and over and not only do we, do we not see it, but we almost become immune to it to the point where we even think this is the best way to live. And this is a scary place to be. Because notice how Solomon lays out the severity of the situation of the fool. He opens up in verse 11, he says, he opens up by saying that a fool is like a dog returning to its vomit. I mean, it can't get much worse than that, like dog vomit, like that's, that's the lowest of the low. But no, you'd be wrong because Solomon goes on to say that there's a level of foolishness even worse than dog vomit. And this kind of fool, this, this, this foolishness, the foolest of the fools is one who is wise in their own eyes. Solomon says there's more hope for the dog vomit fool than the person who sees themselves as the standard of all things and who struggles to see their own foolishness. And so if fools struggle to see their foolishness, I mean, then, 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 I mean, then if we are foolish, then is there any hope? Like, how do we even address this? If by definition the fool doesn't see their foolishness, what can we do? Well, the fool struggles to see their foolishness, and so in light of that, we have to admit that we have blind spots. We have to be willing to admit that we have blind spots. And, and again, this is the weird check, uh, catch 22, that the definition of a fool is one who, who is incapable of seeing their blind spots. So it's not really helpful for me to just say, hey, look at your blind spots, because by definition, we can't see them. But I would be foolish, I would be a bad pastor if I didn't challenge all of us 
to try to open up our eyes to see, to be willing to recognize that we have them even though we may not see them. And so right now, what I want to ask all of us in this room, I want to ask us three questions to consider as we try to guard ourselves from dying as fools, guarding ourselves from a life of regret. I want us to ask ourselves these three questions. The first is this, is it possible that I have a blind spot in my life? Is it possible that I have a blind spot in my life? Second, and relatedly, is it possible that there are things I refuse to see? Is it possible there are things that it's not just that I can't see, but that I won't see? in my life? And thirdly, is it possible that I am this fool that Solomon describes, that I am wise in my own eyes? If you and I can't answer yes to at least one of those questions, then we are in a very scary and dangerous place. If we can't answer yes to at least one of these questions, then we are finding ourselves in that category of worse than dog vomit fool. And that is a scary place to be. Another way to think about it, if, if, because maybe right now, like, you're, you're in this place of foolishness, and you can't even hear these words right now. And maybe another way of getting at it and trying to assess our own foolishness, our own blind spots, is to ask ourselves the question of who do we tend to blame for the problems in our life? Who do we tend to blame? And I'm not saying that, that you know, problems in your life are legitimately attributed to other people. I'm not, I'm not denying that. But I believe that the fool is one who is so quick, so prone, so built up and wired to look for the blame in other people and not themselves. If we want to identify our blind spots, then we should ask ourselves the question, what and who do we blame? And a phenomenal resource I would recommend, it's a teeny tiny book, it's called Blind Spots by Colin Hansen. I would commend it to you. But in it, Hansen says this very beautifully. He says, we are born blamers. We're born blamers. No matter how old you get, you can always blame your parents for how you turned out. Growing up, we're convinced that God gave us brothers and sisters so we'd have someone to blame. Amen to that. We know where to point the finger. And, and, and Colin goes, uh, Hansen goes on to say this. He says, you find problems at the end of your pointed fingers and solutions in the mirror. In reality, the finger pointed toward the mirror tells you we're to search first for the problem. So we should be willing to ask ourselves the question and be willing to admit that we have blind spots, that there are things we can't see that we don't see, and are we willing to recognize that and invite others in to help us see this? So, so if the fools struggle to see their foolishness, we must admit that we have blind spots. But second, fools are also a rule unto themselves. Fools are a rule unto themselves. It's not just that fools think that they are wise. That, that, that's, that's true. But what's, what's worse is that the fool thinks that their thoughts, their actions, their values, their decisions are the gold standard by which everything else is measured. That the way in which I conduct my life, the way in which I view the world, how I understand the economy, how I view politics, how my understanding of sexual ethics is, is exactly how everyone else should see it, and we are a rule unto ourselves. Which is why Solomon says in Proverbs 21, verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but it is the Lord that weighs the heart. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but it is the Lord who weighs the heart. And what does this kind of thinking do? That the person who kind of sees, I'm right in my own eyes, the way I see things is perfect, no, no one can really object to this. 
What is waiting for this kind of fool? Well, Solomon says in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You see, this kind of foolish posture is not just about someone who's arrogant and closed-minded, but this, this path of foolishness is a path that leads to our, to our demise, to our destruction. And, and if we just take a second and just, just think about that, if we're really honest, we, we recognize the futility of this kind of thinking. We recognize the hollowness of being a rule unto ourselves, of being the person who says, I determine what is right, I know what is ultimately good, true, and beautiful. There's a hollowness to that. There's a pathetic nature to that. It's like the kid who's, who's constantly making up rules to a sport, and then when you don't uh, uh, comply, he takes his ball and goes home. Like, no one wants to play with that kid because they, he is a rule unto himself. And yet, while we can kind of see, I mean, like, th- this is not an admirable way of, of living. It's not very virtuous. I mean, even if you don't like the Bible, a person who says, I am a rule unto myself, that is not an admirable or virtuous person. And yet, this is by and large how our culture, and how, how both Christians and non-Christians, how we kind of construct our moral standards. That it's not really rooted in something substantial, objective, transcendent. It just is purely based on how I perceive how I should live. It's a a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, he puts it this way in in his phenomenal book, A Secular Age, and describing kind of the condition we're in in our postmodern Western culture. He says this, moral positions are not in any way grounded in reason or the nature of things but are ultimately just adopted by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. This is primarily how we we construct our moral standards, not because it adheres to some other standard outside of us, but because it just completely aligns with how I perceive and prefer to live. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a conscience and we shouldn't have convictions, but but when this becomes our steady diet of how we conduct our moral lives, purely based on my own perspectives. That's like trying to have a steady diet of Halloween candy to gain most of your nutrition from. You know, like, I'm not objecting to Halloween candy. I'm a fan of it. As much as I would love Almond Joys and dark, uh, what are they called, Midnight Milky Ways? Oh my gosh, those are my favorite. I would love for those to be my main source of nutrition. And and while that's enticing, I also know how empty and hollow that is. Which, side note, kids, if, if none of you like Midnight Milky Ways or Almond Joys, I will find a home for them. I'm happy to take care of them if you don't like coconut. Uh, hmm. Anyway, uh, but we, we tend to see this kind of way of looking at morality as the best way to live, but, but if we're honest, it's rather hollow and pathetic. Because the person who has stopped listening to wisdom... The person who has stopped seeking input, the person who has stopped receiving correction has stopped being a person of wisdom, has stopped being a person of virtue, has stopped being a person of nobility. And so if fools are a rule unto themselves, then what does the path of wisdom look like? Well, it looks like trusting in the goodness of God's design. And, and, and this is where some people kind of get off the wisdom train. Like, okay, I was trucking with you, you know, the idea of not being a rule unto ourselves, I get that, but now you're bringing God in, I just, that's just too implausible for me. And, and that may describe you, you know, the idea of, 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 of a God, of a, of, a, of a divine being where we get our morality from, and maybe that's too implausible, maybe it's, it's laughable to you. And if, that's, if that describes you, first of all, I'm glad you're here. I, I want our church to be a place where we can 
wrestle with these questions and, and disagree with grace. But if that describes you, let me ask you this question. If there isn't a God with a design for life, then what keeps you and I from becoming a rule unto ourselves? If there's no God who, who, who has a design for how life is to be lived, then what keeps us from going down the path of foolishness of being a rule unto ourselves? I mean, if there is no God, we, we are left to essentially become a collective rule unto ourselves, where you kind of have the blind leading the blind, so to speak. But if we also agree that being a rule unto ourselves is foolish, then where do we go from here? You see, I, I, I think our, our, our modern culture, I think we're slowly waking up to the fact that we're stuck. That, that in our abandonment of God, when we declared God dead, you know, that he's not really, uh, if he exists, he's just kind of like a deity out there that doesn't really care about us. I think we're starting to wake up to the fact that by dismissing God and being a standard unto ourselves, we have found ourselves morally stuck. We have found ourselves essentially sawing off the branch that we're sitting on, so to speak. I actually, I appreciate how the uh, atheist author, his name is uh, Julian Baggini, uh, he describes it this way. He says, for the religious person, at least there is some bedrock belief that gives a reason to believe that morality is real and will prevail. But in an atheist universe, morality can be rejected without a clear, compelling reason to believe in its reality, and that's exactly what will sometimes happen. So if we find ourselves stuck, if you find yourself stuck between the implausibility of God, but also the, the, the futility and the hollowness of being a standard unto ourselves, then why not reconsider the premise that you rejected, that there is a God? I believe that the way we avoid foolishness is trusting in and embracing the goodness of God's design for life. And that design is found when we seek His wisdom not just our own. In Proverbs 8, there's this beautiful um, personification of wisdom. Wisdom is, is kind of speaking as a person, and we see wisdom describing uh, herself as being present at creation. In, in Proverbs 8, uh, uh, Solomon says this in describing wisdom. Uh, and this is wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work of creation, the first of his acts of old. And then he goes on to describe that wisdom, since wisdom was there when creation took place, when wisdom was there as the world was as it ought to be, then wisdom is what we pursue to live the life that we long to live, the life that we ought to live. Which is why Solomon says that this is the passage that Jonathan read for us, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. Do you notice that? And all who hate me love death. So, so the person who fails to find wisdom is not just a fool and is not just blind, but they're, they're, they're hurting themselves. They're working against their own joy and happiness. Wisdom is found in living within God's design. So do you want to find life? I mean, do you want to live a life with, with less regret? then we have to guard ourselves from foolishness by trusting in God's good design. For his design for life is not simply about keeping us uh, from, from bad things, but it's also about protecting and preserving our joy. 
God's design and his good design boundaries are for our good, for our joy. But this will be increasingly difficult for us to do. We we will find it so difficult to see our blind spots and to live within God's good design if we continue to be the fools who hide their mistakes and failures. And that's the third thing I want us to look at, is that fools hide their mistakes and their failures. And and there's a reason why I saved this one for last, because it's the one that I know I am the most prone to fall into. I know that I am a master at covering up my mistakes, of spinning them in such a way where it's somebody else's fault, hiding them and denying them. The fool is one who hides their mistakes and failures. Now, now let, me, let me be clear. A fool is not someone who just makes mistakes. That's, that's, that's human. I, I'm not saying that if you make a mistake, you're a fool, but rather the fool is determined and defined by what he does or what she does with those mistakes. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, Solomon says, whoever conceals his transgressions, his sins, his mistakes, so to speak, will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You see, keeping silent about our mistakes and our failures and our sins, it seems like a good idea because we're trying to save face, we're trying to maintain our reputation, but it inevitably leads to us managing our sin, and that is a task that is way beyond our pay grade. We do not have the ability to deal with, to manage, to atone, to forgive the brokenness that we find in our lives and our hearts. And not only, not only does this hiding of our sin and mistakes, not only does it keep us from wisdom, it makes matters far worse. This is how Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it so well in his book, Life Together, another small book. I'm a fan of small books, by the way. I guess that's why they call me Little Reed. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but Bonhoeffer says this. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Now, I think deep down we know this. We we know that being silent about our mistakes and our sin and our our regrets is just going to make matters worse. And and, and yet, we, we find ourselves still going down that path of hiding because we believe that to be open about our sins and mistakes is antithetical to, to the path to the good life because it's going to jeopardize my reputation. It's going to ruin the way in which I'm perceived by others. But what we find is that the more we bury our sin, the more we hide it, the more we try to cover up and manage our mistakes, the deeper our despair and sorrow becomes. I am firmly, I'm firmly convinced of that. And yet somewhere along the lines, we convinced ourselves that the cost of others knowing our sin is far greater than the cost I'm sorry, that the cost of others knowing our sins and mistakes is greater than the pain of keeping them in. We were convinced somewhere along the lines that the cost of of being open with our sins was far greater than the cost of keeping them in and letting them fester. And and this is a lie that that has ruined marriages. This is a lie that has severed relationships, ended companies, split churches. The lie that says, I can do this on my own. 
I can deal with this sin and brokenness. There's no need to confess it. And this lie will take us down a path where regret and foolishness, where the weeds of of regret and foolishness grow wild and where the flowers of peace and wisdom wither away. So if fools hide their mistakes and failures, then wisdom would have us repent and apologize often. In light of that description of the fool, the path of the wise, the one who seeks to avoid a life of regret, repents and apologizes often. How can we avoid being this kind of fool? How how can we avoid being the person who's wise in our own eyes, who's a rule unto ourselves, who hides mistakes and failures? It It is through the ongoing and regular practice of repentance and apology. And, and just think about it, like, when was the last time you, you apologized to someone? When was the last time you admitted that you were wrong? When was the last time you, you invited and welcomed correction and rebuke? And, and the test of that question, like, you actually shouldn't answer it. It should be answered by your, your coworkers, by your, your classmates, your friends, your roommate, your spouse, your children. Are we quick to recognize and admit that we're wrong and to turn from it? Recently, I've been, you know, been trying to, to train our, our kids and how we think about what is repentance and how do you apologize. And, and you know, apologizing, you, you don't just, I'm not talking about like this vague repentance of like, I'm not perfect, or the, the apology that just consists of one word, sorry. You know, like, like what I've told my girls is that when you, when you apologize to someone, you, you apologize specifically to someone specifically for something you did specifically. You know, you don't go to the doctor and just say, I hurt. You know, like that doesn't, that doesn't give the doctor much to work with. You've got to be clear about what it is that is broken within you. In the same way, when it comes to repentance, we need to be able to repent and apologize specifically for specific things to specific people. Now, I know that word, repentance, it's kind of churchy. Uh, it, it's loaded with some baggage, and, and I get that. But, but really what we mean by this word, what repentance means is, is turning away from the path that we're on and turning towards a better path. It is turning away from the path we're on and turning towards a better path. But the kind of repentance we need, the kind of repentance we need, if we want to avoid this life of foolishness, a life of regret, the kind of repentance we need is not just one of turning away from our mistakes, it is turning towards something greater. Indeed, turning towards someone greater. You see, the wise life we long to live will ultimately ring hollow in our lives and leave us wanting more and filled with regret if we fail to see that it requires repentance, an ongoing, regular posture of admitting that we were broken. And I say that because our fundamental problem, all of us, our fundamental problem is not just that we are fools who make bad decisions that we regret, although that's true. Our fundamental problem is that we are sinners who are dead and who need to be brought back to life. You see, the act of repentance is not just a wise, virtuous discipline that helps us make less mistakes, although it's true. I believe repentance is the fundamental posture that brings us back into a right standing with God, recognizing how broken we are and yet how redeemed and forgiven in love we can be. You see, the good news is that the life of wisdom that you and I all, I think, long to live is possible through the life of the wisest one who ever lived. 
The one who came to not only rescue us from our foolishness, but to rescue us from our sinfulness, to rescue us from the fundamental thing that ails us. You see, Jesus has come to rescue us from our blindness. He has come to equip us and enable us to live within God's good designed world that is for our good, and that when we stray from it, we are harming and injuring ourselves. Jesus came so that we might not have to bear our sin and shame or bury it so that it is hidden from others to see, but he came and bore it himself fully. Jesus became our regret. He became every foolish decision that we've ever made so that it could die with him on the cross, never being able to define us or mark us again. In this way, Jesus is not just our great and wise teacher. He is our gracious and loving Savior, who we follow in all of life. The life of wisdom is not just a a list of virtues. It is not just a few great things that, that Jesus taught that we can tweet out and feel good about. But the life of wisdom is found when we embrace the understanding that our fundamental problem is not that we're fools, but that we are sinners in need of redemption. You see, we all want to live a life of wisdom. I think we all want that. And we want to live with less regret. And so if that's true, then what I would urge all of us, regardless of where you are in the faith spectrum, I I, I would urge all of us to avoid the greatest regret of all. Let us avoid the greatest regret of coming to Jesus, whether for the first time or the 50th time or the 100th time, we need to daily come to him and recognize that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. For with Christ, there are no regrets. Amen? Well, as we continue together, here's what I'd like for us to do. I I want us to put into practice what what we've preached, so to speak. And I'd love to just give us a moment to reflect and pray. I don't think we do that enough. I think we need time to slow down, to reflect and pray, and and specifically to come before God with our honest thoughts, our honest feelings and hearts, and ask Him to show us our blind spots. Ask Him to equip us to walk within His good design boundaries and to empower us to be a people who live lives of repentance. And so what I urge you to do is just to take a moment to silently pray And then I'll invite us together to to come together to pray collectively a prayer of confession to calibrate our hearts. So let's take a moment to pray together, and I'll invite us for our prayer of confession. Let's pray. Would you pray this prayer of confession with me? Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed, and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Well, it is a joy to, to be with you this morning, and, and I do, I hope, I think we say this like every Sunday, I, I hope you felt encouraged but also a bit convicted uh, as we think about the severity of, of, of wisdom and foolishness, that it truly is a matter of life and death. 
that the life of wisdom is a life that, that God is calling us to live. It is a life that He's designed for us to live for our good and for His glory. And conversely, a life of foolishness is a life filled with regret and filled with destruction. And so I hope this was an encouragement and challenge to you. As, as we leave this place, I, I want to read from uh, the book of Proverbs to, to bring this time to a close, but, but to communicate that we, we continue to live a life of wisdom moving forward. So as we prepare to leave from being the church gathered to being the church scattered, may we seek to walk in the path of wisdom. So hear these words from Proverbs chapter 8 for our benediction, our good word for the road. Brothers and sisters, hear instruction and be wise. And do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Amen. Go in peace. Have a wise week.